considering the fact that Kevin Spacey is going to be in the next call out, uh, call out, <laughs> Kevin Spacey. He's going to be in the next call out. He's going to be in the next call out. Radio Drone. I am Josh Hadley, and I will never be a washed-up star. On the other hand, Cecil T., maybe? I'm already washed up. Yeah. Alex Jowski, absolutely. No, I will never be. Egomaniac. So, since Cecil, you're washed up, you need the work, do the Adam and Eve promo. Uh, you know, I knew you were going to get it. I set you... your ass up! <laughs> you certainly did. If you go to adamandeve.com and enter the promo code DROME, you get three free DVDs, free shipping, and a free mystery gift for promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. As well as 50% off the same. And 50%. God damn it. See, I've been trying to do it off script because uh, I, I, I had the page in front of me before. That's the reason that you're not getting any work. That certainly is because I, I never remember my lines. Well, since this is your topic, technically two topics, but they're related, do you want to tell people why you want to talk about washed-up actors and then... About washed-up actors that uh, transitioned into doing full-motion video games in the early 90s. It was I believe just... the email was, I want to talk about Dana Plato! Why? Well, no, it wasn't even, I want to talk about Dana Plato. I just wrote Dana Plato. And <laughs> you were like, what? Did you ever play any FMV games back in the day? I don't mean... Going back, but I mean back in the 90s. They were games that, you know what, some of them were okay, but most of it was they were games that had extended cutscenes is basically what it comes down to. Sometimes you got to interact with it. They always played like crap. It wasn't even, the, oh, so the load times, the, the polygon. You'd see a famous actor and their face is just resorted to pixels. Well, I think to stick with Cecil's topic, you'd see a, in most cases, formally famous actor. Because FMV games were the place where a lot of actors, when their careers hit the skids in the mid-90s, FMV games were the thing. Full motion video, it was basically like watching a movie in really crappy quality that you eventually got to do something with. Like maybe there was a gun overlay and you got to shoot a guy. Or like Alex pointed out, it was just kind of cut scenes and then you'd do some first person shooting or something in between and then go back to the story of Mulder and Scully trying to solve the mystery or whatnot. Would that be about accurate, Cecil? Kind of. Uh, I mean, the thing was, it's it was really crappy quality now. But back then... We were like, I mean, it was amazing just that you were able to have these segments in there anyway. And the thing was, uh, imagine QuickTime 2.0 being the height of quality. Yeah, we had uh, like when it first came out with Sega CD and whatnot, the quality wasn't that good because they could only have 32 colors on screen at a time in the cutscenes. But then once they worked with it for a while and they started to put it out on other systems, and it, it got better. So a lot of the later full motion video games had really, you know, 
still somewhat pixelated quality, but nowhere near as bad as like the first generation stuff. Why did so many actors on their way down get pulled into FMVs? Because in the 70s and 80s, an actor on his way down would usually get stuck in TV movie hell. In the 90s, it was FMV hell. Why do you think that shift happened? Because the direct-to-video market was, during the late 90s, I mean, the VHS boom was long dead and DVDs hadn't caught on, caught on yet, so there wasn't really a direct-to-video market at that time outside of video games. It was just the the new frontier. It was they had uh, all this interest in doing full motion video because a lot of people believed that this was going to be the next big thing. You had bigger actors and whatnot that weren't going to do this stuff, and they wanted to kind of legitimize it a bit. So it's like, all right, well, do we pay next to nothing and get a bunch of like really low grade actors, or do we get some actors who are recognizable faces and bring them in, but they're not going to charge a lot of money because for the most part, they're not really getting a lot of TV and movie work anymore. But the, you know, general public is going to be like, oh, well, uh, I, uh, th- this game is starring, you know, this person. Oh my God. You know, that's, that's great. So they're still going to go a little bit crazy over it. Well, I don't even know about it if it was these people aren't very expensive anymore because FMV games, and I'm just talking for the FMV sequences, even though they did kind of look like crap, you know, at the time, just given what the technology was, these things were expensive when done right. Look at something like the Wing Commander spinoff, Privateer 2, The Darkening, which, by the way, I want to point out that is one of the worst Sir titles I have ever heard. But look at this cast you've got. Clive Owen, John Hurt, Jurgen Prock now, David Warner, Amanda Pays, Matilda May, David McCollum, Brian Blessed, Christopher Walken, and I can just go on and on. And you go, these things had full sets, special effects, sound effects, original scores. I think I remember reading something about Privateer 2 The Darkening having a budget of almost $10 million. For a video game in the 90s, that was extravagant. But the thing is... That's the Wing Commander games. The Wing Commander games fell outside of the usual FMV stigma because when they did Wing Commander 3, they had John Rhys-Davies, Mark Hamill, uh, Yvette Nepar, Malcolm McDowell, Courtney Gaines, Tom Wilson, who was uh, he, he was uh, Biff from the Back to the Future movies. You had Ginger Lynn Allen, who, you know, the former porn star. So, but the thing was, the, right off the right out of the gate, the fact that you had Malcolm McDowell, Mark Hamill, and John Reese Davies is pretty freaking huge right there. The Wing Commander games were really professionally done, and they were award-winning games. Benchmark, weren't they? That was the thing. So uh, they kind of fall outside of the realm. Like that's not like a Daedalus encounter or something where it, you know that was the Tia Carrera one. Where okay, I, how, how about Ripper? From 1996. Well, Ripper Christ- had Christopher Walken. Walken, Burgess Meredith, Karen Allen, David Patrick Kelly, Ozzie Davis, John Rhys Davies, Paul Giamatti, Jimmy Walker, although I don't know if that was a real coup, but... Well, the thing was, with something like Ripper, Ripper was, you know, not was 1996. So this was a couple years after, like, full motion videos r- games really started to take off. So it was, I mean, it was an expensive gamble. 
to to try to get those named actors into it. But again, Ripper was kind of like following in with Wing Commander, where it was this is kind of the new thing, so we need to we need to get as many people into there as possible. You know, recognizable faces. Well, and I would say with Ripper, that one goes more to your an actor on their way down. David Patrick Kelly hadn't really done a whole lot in years. Karen Allen, she'd do anything for a sandwich. Jimmy Walker, who the hell even knows who Jimmy Walker was in 96, let alone today? You know? I know my eat. <laughs> but my point is, Ripper is more of a, yeah, most of these guys were just looking for any kind of work. Whereas, like, Privateer, almost, I mean, Clive Owen was still up and coming. Otherwise, everyone else was a pretty established and still viable name when they made Privateer 2 The Darkening, also in 96, though. Yeah, but, I mean, with with the Ripper, you had Christopher Walken, who had just done Pulp Fiction a couple years earlier, which was kind of a big deal. So, And he never really—he's one of those guys that— He'll be in gigantic movies and then in little nothing movies. And this yeah. was kind of falls into that. Like he was in a little full motion video game and then he'll go and be in an Oscar winning production. Yeah, Christopher Walken was never really washed up. I mean, he just does things on a whim because he just loves acting. He seems to do just whatever he wants. He does whatever he wants. He's like, yeah, I'll do it. It'll be fun. Okay, I, I'm looking at some of the some of the actors in various FMVs. Like you had you had Dirk Benedict as a regular in these. You had Tia Carrere, Mark Hamill, as you pointed out. Dennis Hopper was in the Black Dahlia one. I don't know what the hell he was thinking. So it was a terrible game too. You know, you have you have Tim Curry. You've got these name actors who just maybe perhaps don't command what they what they used to. Or do you think that someone... Dennis Hopper always struck me as a guy who really wanted to explore and expand. He seemed like he was doing this because he thought this kind of was the new frontier. I don't think Dennis Hopper was aware that he was making a video game. He's like, wow, a movie about demonically possessed Nazis? Hey, I'll do it. Yeah, I don't know. That one could kind of go either way. It could be Dennis Hopper exploring uh, new things, or it could have been, we just got you some really good coke, and, uh, <laughs> hey, what am I doing? All right, whatever. He's got to read these specific lines. Yeah, this is crazy. What do I? What am I wearing this suit for? What? You know, yeah. So I, I could see that going either way. Hell, he was in he was in a game called Hell where he played a demon called Sanguinarius, I believe. And, That's easy to say. And or no, no, no. He was he Mister or was he Mister Beauty? It's been a while since I played the game. But basically, it was like a little tiny body and it had Dennis Hopper's head on it, and uh, it was awesome. The game was phenomenal. But uh, that was one that had uh, it was mostly 3D kind of graphics for the time. I think it was 95. But it did have a digital uh, Stephanie Seymour in it, so it had one full motion video character in a game where it was all like rendered and she was your dead ex-girlfriend who came back to life as a hologram well do you think that that fmvs or video games in general i guess have have just become the place to go like do you think the they kind of people like dennis hopper and mark hamill and all that kind of pioneered like alex pointed out when the when the direct-to-video market started to dry up that this was the next frontier because i remember back like in the 70s when shatner during the first time he was washed up this is between star trek and tj hooker he literally would take anything 
It didn't matter if the script was any good. If it came with a paycheck, he'd be there shooting it. He did not care at all because he needed to work. Do you think that that this was sort of the the trailblaze so you didn't have to do that anymore? Or Rob Lowe being stuck in mid-90s TV movie hell when he was on, I can't even count how many movies of the week in a single year? Me personally, though, like I, I think that if I was an actor who was kind of on his way down, it was either do a Lifetime movie or uh, do a, a video game movie, or I shouldn't say video game movie, but video game with you well, know, uh, full with motion video aspects. With an it was kind of like on their end shooting a movie. Right. It was kind of like, but I mean, a lot of uh, occasionally, actually, it's kind of funny because now uh, it probably making movies probably has more in common with making full motion video movies because a lot of them, they would shoot them on green screens. And now we're getting, you know, entire movies being shot on green screens. So they kind of were a little bit ahead of their time in that aspect. They just didn't have the video codex yet. I don't know. I think if I was an actor who was kind of down on my luck and I had the opportunities to do these uh, full motion video games, I probably would have jumped on it because it would have been something different. And at the time, it really did seem like it was going to be the next big thing. So I wonder if a lot of actors were thinking, hey, you know, my my career making movies might be washed up, but I might be the next big star in video games. Do you, do you think that, that that ideal has changed a lot from the FMV days to the mocap days of today? Because, for instance, I remember when I was working on that movie Feed the Fish, I was in the basement of a hospital between shots with Vanessa Branch, you know, the Orbit's gum lady. As soon as she got done shooting her scenes in this hospital, she was flying back to L.A. to do the voice work and motion capture for the game that would become Dante's Inferno. And she would do movies and commercials and video games. Do you think it's somehow been legitimized now that you you can be in video games and movies? Because I remember in the FMV days, even if you were still a star, you were looked down on for being in in a video game when you should be doing movies. Well, it's definitely more accepted nowadays because you have bigger names in video games now. I mean, you had Liam Neeson in Fallout 3. Ron Perlman in the same game. Ron Perlman was also in Halo 3, and I think he was a voice in Reach as well, but maybe not. Martin Sheen was in Mass Effect. Considering the fact that Kevin Spacey is going to be in the next call-out... Call-out. Kevin Spacey... He's going to be in the next call-out. He's going to be in the next call-out. Kevin Spacey's going to be in the next Call of Duty. I think that right there, if ever there was a question as to whether or not it's been legitimized, that simple fact right there should be absolutely yes, it's been legitimized. If you have an Oscar-winning actor who is right now, his career is without question, I wouldn't say it's as big as it's been, but his career is still riding pretty high. And the fact that he's doing Call of Duty right there says that you know this is absolutely not a step down. Well, do you think that, that direct-to-video, being banished to direct-to-video hell was a legitimate thing because you you had people like Wesley Snipes being in Expendables 3. I think this is the first theatrical movie he's been in in seven, eight years, and he's been in like 15 movies. Val Kilmer is in direct-to-video hell. Christian Slater is in direct-to-video hell. Seagal's been there for a long time. Chuck Norris is there. Van Damme has been there. Why do you think the star, as they're falling, they get banished to, if it's not TV movie hell, it's direct-to-video, anything for a paycheck hell. Well, it's 
basically whoever's paying. Uh, if they can't get these the big budget movies anymore, they're going to go to the smaller budget movies. And uh, I, I don't I don't see anything particularly terribly wrong with them because there are a lot of direct to video movies that I enjoy a lot more than some of the big theatrical movies because they're but they're more let's, genuine. But let's take Seagal for an example. His direct to video stuff is horrendous. And I'm not just talking about his performance. I mean, sloppy ass scripts, terrible production value, that these were movies that were going to suck no matter what. And all they did is go, "Ooh, we can get Steven Seagal. Now it'll sell more but suck just as bad." I kind of liked Beneath the Dark or was it or not Beneath the Dark? Against the Dark. Against the Dark, thank you. Although he was barely in it. I but, have uh, any of Seagal's DTV work. They're terrible. This shows how much Seagal has fallen. They can't even get Seagal to come back to dub himself in looping sessions. They get a really awkward sound alike, and I put that in quotes, to try and dub Seagal, which is kind of sad in and of itself. As an actor is falling, what happens when they finally get that pushback? Like, John Travolta had the pushback from Pulp Fiction, which he immediately pissed away with one bad decision after another. He became an A-list star again. You had, okay, Alex, remember when, when we did the Scanners retrospective? When we got to Scanners 5, we were just sitting there going, Robert Forster's just thinking, oh, God, when is Tarantino going to revitalize my career? He didn't even want to be there. You could tell in that movie, he, he just didn't want to be there at all, and he was waiting for somebody to revitalize his career. And Pulp Fiction and uh, Jackie Brown was still about four years away. Yeah, he just and he didn't. You know what? He didn't do much after Jackie Brown. It made him a big name for a while, but he didn't really capitalize on it. He was in quite a few. He was in quite a few big movies and supporting roles, and he 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 kind of moved to TV. But TV used to be that same way too. There used to be this saying that Mel Gibson so beautifully exemplified in the early 2000s. When he was asked to guest star on like a CSI or something like that, and his quote was, I'm a movie actor. You only do TV when you're not good enough to be in movies anymore. Do you think that that was ever true, or is that just the arrogance of Mel Gibson shining through? That's the arrogance of Mel Gibson, definitely. No, I think that's totally true. I think that um, not so much now, but I think there was there's like levels of things. Like it used to be... If you uh, if you're an actor and you work your way up and let's say you start doing like TV, well, actually, I should say it was like if you started doing cable and then you started doing network television and then you moved on and you did movies. Well, if you're doing movies and now all of a sudden you're moving back and you're doing television, well, that's that was a step backwards. Now, not so much now because TV and especially cable, if you're in like a big cable TV show, a very popular one, that is huge. Whereas back in the day, that was kind of like, uh, you know, he's in he's in a cable show. But if you can't even get on a network, yeah, can't even get on a network. But yeah, if you're doing a really popular cable show, you can transition between doing that show and then when the show is is in the mid, you know, is in the season break, you can go do movies for a while and then come back and continue that show and not miss a beat, and it's not really looked down upon. Whereas probably at the time when he said that, it was still like, oh, God, television is a step backwards. And see, I don't agree with that. For instance, like Tommy Chong, when Cheech and Chong were getting ready to put out Get Out of My Room, their home video special, which was a parody of music videos and home video specials, Tommy Chong didn't want to do it. He's like, 
we make movies going to direct to video and make and you know this is the rise of MTV music videos he considered that a step backwards I think that's arrogant as hell that no 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 I am a movie actor I am too good to be in music videos I am too good to be on a home video that that just smacks of of just arrogance to me and it's funny how as soon as their careers start to slide they embrace that stuff that was way below them before. It's almost like, just to use the Tommy Chong example, like he thought they were going to stay on top of movies forever. I, I think that's a very short-sighted, arrogant way to look at it. I don't know if it's the same today, but that's the way it was back in the 80s. I'll agree with you that, yeah, there is the fact that a lot of people used to consider it a step down, but it's not so anymore. But... Back in the day, people, yeah, there was a great stigma against television. Because it wasn't movies. It wasn't as profitable. I mean, people weren't as into TV as they are now. Because you would but, have... But you've always had these actors like John Saxon. He can make a big-budget movie. He can make a movie for, at the time, they were an independent studio. A New Line movie. And he can be on a cop show at the same time. You've got, you've got Sid Haig. Sid Haig is killing people in Roger Corman flicks that are playing at drive-ins across the country... And he's also on the soap opera Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman at the same time and the kids show Jason of Star Command. Why is it some actors can freely move in the, within these worlds and other actors are, no, I'm a movie actor? Well, that's an ego thing to say that. But I think the big turning point was when the cast of Friends were getting a million dollars an episode where everybody is watching Friends more than they're watching movies and actors are starting to realize how much respect being on television can earn them. Because before that, people didn't really respect TV actors as much as they do now. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's it's also uh, a money thing, like Alex said. It was that, you know, if you're in a movie, you're getting X amount of millions of dollars. But then if you're in a TV show and you're in a really popular one, something like Friends, you're making a million dollars per episode. If they crank out 30 episodes a season, it's $30 million. And then in the off season, you can go and start making movies. There's not only respect, but there's a crap ton of money to be made there. You know, yeah. Why wouldn't they try to transition into both? Because that way they, they kind of can bounce back and forth between the two things instead of just sticking it all into uh, movies. Uh, as far as the whole Cheech and Chong thing, um, I, I guess I should shouldn't say that I'm surprised, but I, I think that they just didn't really see that what they did was eventually going to go away. I guess their popularity was so huge that they figured it would just continue. But their stuff was always it, it was always destined to be a niche category. I mean, it's great. And I love the Cheech and Chong movies. I think they're hilarious. I think they're still funny. They they should have been able to see that their days were numbered. I, I think it was par partially short sightedness because Cheech wanted to try this music video thing, which was, you know, new at the time. He was trying to expand it. And normally Tommy Chong was the big creative force in behind the scenes angle. And he was just absolutely dead set against it, against it, which is what I think is weird because it's no, it was normally with their relationship, the exact opposite. It was Chong that wanted to try new things and Cheech that just wanted to do what was popular, which is why I found it so shocking that Chong would be like, Music video is not the next... He actually says it. It's not the next big thing. Well, that was f***ing stupid because we all know what happened a year later, right? Music was video was the next big thing. For a while. It's not anymore, though. 
no, but in the 80s. But you even have the same thing. John Landis gave an interview in like Fangoria or something back when he did Michael Jackson's Thriller. People in the movie community were looking down on him. He said one director who, I can't remember who it was, I haven't read this since the 80s, looked at him and said, what happened to all your money? Why do you need to do this video? And he's like, you don't get it. I don't need to. I want to. That directing a music video was considered such a step back that it was, dude, what happened? Because music videos, they didn't even have the, they were nothing. It was a three-minute thing that catered to a niche audience at the time. It wasn't until years to where people realized that the young adults are a very viable market that will pay lots and lots of money. At the time, it was basically, there's kids, and then there's adults. There was nobody catering towards the in-between, and that's actually where MTV came in, and it took a while for people to realize just what kind of viable market it was. It's just ridiculous, because I think that kind of shows the pettiness of the industry sometimes, is it's like, because when he did Thriller... He was still on top, so he wasn't... Oh, yeah, this is right after American Werewolf in London, Blues Brothers. Yeah, dude, he just did... Yeah, he went Kentucky Fried Movie, Animal House, Blues Brothers, American Werewolf in London, Trading Places, Twilight Zone the movie, and then Thriller. So he was on fire. There was this stigma that, like I said, what happened? You know, like all of a sudden he'd blown all of his money and needed the work, and it was almost unfathomable to think that I want to do this. I want to work with Michael Jackson, and I want to try something new. Does that also speak towards the kind of stagnant nature of Hollywood, either then or now? Yeah, absolutely. It showed that they don't see where things are going. The simple fact that the biggest at the time, pop star in the world, Michael Jackson, and this humongous album that he wanted to have John Landis produce and direct this epic music video. It was almost like a short film, because isn't the video totally uncut, like 14 minutes or something? Oh yeah, the whole video is very long. It's something like that, I think like 14, 15 minutes. And it, it does play out like a short film because there's a whole beginning setup that you know where he does like some uh american werewolf in london effects where it's michael jackson you know turning into the werewolf and then it does the whole thriller music video and then has the whole zombie ending thing i mean yeah it it plays out in in like a short film and it's just silly that there were other directors that would look down upon that and not realize that hey, maybe this is a kind of a big deal. Well, then you've, you've got that, and then you've got stuff like, and you know, I know we moved from actors to behind the scenes, but like Toby Hooper. Toby Hooper hasn't had a hit since, I think, Texas Chainsaw 2, and even that was a financial bomb, so that wasn't even a hit. Right after that, He's doing the pilot episode of Freddy's Nightmares, and he's he's directing direct-to-video movies. Do you think that is humbling for a director as well when they go from big-budget A-list stuff? I, I'm having trouble getting work on a first-run syndicated show in the 80s. The the thing that, that really sucks, I mean, Toby Hooper just got hosed by the industry because there was a whole lot of problems and whatnot. So that's a shame. Like, he could have gone on to be much bigger, but there was so much screwing and dickering around with his movies that he never really got the attention that he should have gotten. He, over the years, has gotten respect, but he never really got the work that he should have. So it does kind of suck that, like, he was going from 
being the next big horror guy and then having to really struggle with a lot of these smaller, you know, syndicated direct to cable shows. I'm sure it was a kick in the pants, but again, you know, looking at it from it's work and I have to be doing something and it's either this or going back and flipping burgers or something. So at least he was doing that. I mean, there's a lot of people who up and coming directors that would absolutely love a chance to work on some, you know, cable pilots and whatnot. So it, it, but it does kind of suck having to take a back step like that. Well, why do you think with that kind of stigma when it comes to actors, directors, etc., writers in a weirdly positive light don't have that stigma? Like you had all these Stephen King huge theatrical movies coming out, and then he's also writing original screenplays from Tales from the Dark Side and Monsters, and you got George Romero direct, you know, writing and directing episodes of Dark Side, and he's not looked down upon that. You've got Harlan Ellison writing for some of the biggest science fiction shows out there. He's one of the best-selling science fiction authors ever, and he's writing screenplays for The New Outer Limits and all that. Why, when it comes to writers, is it not considered a step backwards, but it is for every other part of the profession? Because you don't see the writer. The writer's not out there in the public the way the star is. Someone like Stephen King and Harlan Ellison I would disagree on that with. Well, Stephen King does kind of get a reputation. I mean, Stephen King movies are pretty hit and miss. More misses than not. Which is, you know what's ironic about that statement, Alex? I think Stephen King's stuff has been handled better, adapted cleaner, on television than it ever has in the movies. Isn't that the exact opposite of what we've been talking about tonight? Why do you think his stuff works better on TV than in movies? Because there's more running time. Because no, I, I don't, I'm not even talking about the miniseries. I'm talking about like a 22 episode, 22 minute episode of Tales from the Dark Side. Why do you think that can adapt the story, a story of his, and the movie version just gimps it up? Well, because that's adapting a short story. A short story would make a great 22 minute film. However, if you try to take a short story and stretch it out to a full length feature, well, then you get something like. I don't know, Children of the Corn and its sequels. They're I actually liked. I actually, th- I actually thought the short film version of Children of the Corn was not bad. Disciple, Disciples of the Crow was yeah. actually pretty accurate. I'm talking the feature length with Linda Hamilton in it. Yeah, that, that wasn't thing, very good. Or oh, that one, uh, the Graveyard Shift. Is that was, the one with the giant rats? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah that, or The Mangler, which was, by the way, directed by Toby Hooper, based off another short story by Stephen King. Yeah, the, the, so, mang- the Mangler nobody was happy with. The short stories have worked in shorter formats, like an episode of Tales from the Dark Side and whatnot, because it fills that whole block. Well, but I think the miniseries, well, that's the same thing. It's they're, they're adapting this whole thing and stretching it across so they can do just verbatim, which, yeah, it's, you know, like The Shining. Oh, that's the most, the TV version, the most accurate version of that book that's it's ever also been boring as sin, too. Oh, that movie's terrible. But it's accurate to the book, which is great, by the way. The book is wonderful. Which is why Stephen King liked it so much, though, because he hates the Kubrick version. I hate but... the Kubrick version, too, because I just don't think it's a good movie. Oh, you're nuts. I love the Kubrick one. You're a Philistine, Josh. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but okay, the, You the, just, just hate a... it because it's cool to hate it. I don't hate Kubrick's work. I just don't like that movie. Boo. Oh, Alex totally nailed it. Yeah, it's because you don't see them. There's no 
public like persona, so to speak, with the exception of some of the major ones like uh, like King. But even still, the majority of people, when they go to see a movie, if you ask them, you know, who's in this movie? They'll, oh, well, uh, Chris Evans. You know, who directed this movie? They'll know who the director is. Who wrote this movie? They have no idea. Well, then what happens when an actor goes into a different form? Why do you think that tends to not be noticed as much? For instance, like Jodie Foster directed an episode of Tales from the Dark Side, because why not? You know, you've got Harvey Keitel directed an episode of Amazing Stories. You've got Tom Noonan wrote an episode of Monsters. Why do you think when an actor moves behind the camera, it tends to not be noticed as much as when someone from behind the camera moves in front? You know why? Because then again, when you're looking at TV, you don't look at the director that much, like of episodes. You, you never really But, but, but Alex, episodes. think about it. Jodie Foster has worked for George Romero, yet nobody ever talks about that. Yeah, but you never really notice who directed it, any particular episode. Like, it wasn't until years I realized just how many episodes of Star Trek and stuff that Jonathan Frakes and LeVar Burton directed. Yeah, it's kind of a... It's it's a weird thing. You just you don't really always pay attention to who directed it. Uh, I know. Uh, God, uh, what's his name? Fre- uh, Fred Fred Savage went on to become a director, and uh, I know I I believe it was Psych where he directed a whole bunch of episodes of that. Actor David Morse directed a Friday the Thirteenth the series because why not, right? Yeah, yeah and well, he never appeared on the show, but he can direct one. And t- television shows, they don't really promote, you know, oh, this episode is directed by so-and-so. Like, rare occasions will they ever say, promote who directed an episode. I remember when David and, Mamet directed his first S.H.I.E.L.D. episode. That was heavily promoted. Well, yeah, I said rarely. But uh, when, you know, yeah, Well, then you also have ones like Tarantino doing CSI, Rob Zombie doing and CSI. And he did uh, ER. Yeah, the ER one wasn't really all that promoted as Tarantino very much. I mean, it was out there... They pulled out the stops for CSI. And on Tarantino top, did that. Since it's not really promoted, also, when you look at a feature film in theaters, attention is drawn to the directing credit. It's the, it's the last on-screen credit, and usually on-screen credits in movies aren't on top of what's going on in the movie, unlike TV, where you're already into the story and watching the plot, and they're just popping these credits at the bottom that you're not even paying attention to. Why do you think that some of these actors direct stuff and they don't appear in it? Doesn't that always seem weird, like, it took Peter Weller directing three seasons of Sons of Anarchy before he appeared in front of the camera. You know, David Morse directed that Friday the 13th, the series. He didn't appear in it. Jodie Foster didn't give herself a cameo in her Dark Side episode. Why do you think the actors, do you think that they're trying to specifically distance themselves from, no, this is me as a director, that's me as an actor? Because I always find it weird when... when an episode of a TV show is directed by a famous actor and they are not in an, even a cameo. That just always strikes me as weird. I think it's kind of, uh, if, if you talk to a lot of actors, they, there was the old joke of, you know, well, I'm acting, but I really want to direct. So you have somebody who is an actor, they're fairly well known and they start directing. Well, why would they want to step in front of the camera? Cause then that's kind of taking them and being like, well, I don't have enough faith in this person's directing so they're still going to be in front of the camera to show that you know they're they're also acting so i think it's kind of one job at a time look i'm going to 
do this and I'm going to focus on this and I'm going to try to make people think of me more as a director. Whereas if they direct and then they go in front of the camera, then people are still going to think of them as actors. Well, because you've got situations like Freddy's Nightmares. The only reason Robert Englund agreed to do the series was he was promised that he'd get to direct two to three episodes a season. So he's like, you know what? I don't care that the money's good. I don't want to play Freddy right now, but I get to direct. Yes, I'll be in this terrible TV show. Do you think that's more often than not how it works? Yeah, I think so. Why, why do you think when a washed-up actor, and, and I'm just using the term washed-up as sort of a general vague term right here, but a washed-up actor, why do you think they become less picky? Do you think it is all just the IRS is bearing down on me, that they don't care that they'll ever get back to A-list status? Like Nicolas Cage, from what I've heard, he's pulling a 70s Shatner, that it's if the script comes with a check, I'm there. Do you think his that it's just the financial troubles overriding the creative end or or somebody like Nicolas Cage going, I really don't want to be in this movie, but I can't hold out for something remotely good. I've got to take left behind the movie. Well, I think there are the instances where they're, they're, they have some financial difficulties where the expensive lifestyle they developed when they were an A-lister is no longer tenable. So they're just doing whatever they can to get money to maintain that left lifestyle they've come so accustomed to. On top or in the case of Nicolas Cage oh. and Wesley Snipes, uh, you owe the IRS $17 million. Pay us or go to jail. Hey, there's that direct-to-video movie shooting in Czechoslovakia, right? Well, I mean, even for an A-lister, if they were A-listers when that tax thing came, that, that $17 million would have been like, oh, I'll just do Ghost Rider 3. Yeah, I think that uh, it, it, they're they're just trying to do, especially Nicolas Cage right now, he's doing whatever he can. He's just doing movie after movie, regardless of the quality. And uh, I cannot wait to see the Left Behind movie. <laughs> the trailer is horrendous, man. It's going to be amazing in well, the worst possible way. Well, now, th there's one other avenue that washed-up actors, and, th and this is not a solid that every actor that does this is washed up, but there's one other avenue that's always available for washed-up actors, commercials. Is it selling out to do a commercial? Because, I, I don't know, you you'd hear a lot of these, these people that are like, no, I'm not selling out my principles doing this low-budget episode of a TV show or doing a, you know, a video game. To do an Oldsmobile commercial? Oh, Jesus. Because... I'm thinking of, like, George Carlin when he did the 1010-220 commercials in the 90s. Hey, did you ever notice sometimes on your phone bill it says payment received, thank you? Well, what are they thanking you for? You didn't send them the money out of the goodness of your heart. You did it because you don't want to communicate with drums and carrier pigeons for the rest of your life. Hey, if there's any thanking to be done, it's you who ought to be thankful for 1010-220. When you dial 1010-220, you pay only 99 cents for all calls up to 20 minutes and just 10 cents a minute after that. Any time, any day. It's a good deal. Someday you'll thank me. He did consider it selling out, but he's he got he got screwed by his his uh, accountant, and he ended up owing the IRS a ton of money. He said it was not willful. His accountant screwed him and many other clients over by lying to them and embezzling their money. And he's like, I need money and I need it fast. Well, ten ten two twenty wants it. All right, fine. Do you think that's more often the case, or when you hear Henry Rollins narrating a Mitsubishi commercial or whatever, he does a car commercials, I can't remember what company, is that selling out or is that just earning a living? Because, I don't know, for whatever reason, the commercial thing crosses a line with me. Does it with you? 
the commercial thing really is like dirty amongst actors because if you look at uh, there was a website where they posted all celebrity commercials that were in other countries because they're not looked upon as badly there i've seen the still i've seen the still the japanese ones and stuff like that oh they're they're awesome they're they're just these terrible bad uh commercials but it's but i mean they had ones with like brad pitt and and stallone and schwarzenegger when they were at the top of their game because it was easy money but the thing was this a lot of these were prior to the internet so it was like okay well we're gonna film this commercial for japan and it's gonna stay in japan and our our, my american fans will never see this exactly and now oh dear it's the internet we get to see everything you've ever done so uh i i don't really i i don't mind like if if an actor is at a point where he needs money for whatever reasons and he does commercials to help pay the bills i i don't like, who am I to look down? I worked at Burger King when I was in high school. You know, like, that, that doesn't, like, it, it's Well, it's I don't want stuff... you on the show anymore. Then exactly. I, I didn't know about your pedigree. Oh, you son of a bitch. Yes, you look down upon me because I worked at But that's the thing. It's like, I, who am I to look down on somebody? Hey, when I was in high school, I worked at a grocery store. So, exactly. same thing. Same thing, you know, it's like you you do what you have to to pay the bills. And if you're going to do some commercials, I'm sure the commercial's paying fairly well, uh, you know, so why not? I don't know. Tommy Lee Jones did these commercials in Japan for Boss Coffee, and they are the funniest, best commercials ever for a product. Are they in English, or is no. he speaking Japanese? He speaks Japanese. Hello. なんですかあなたのマイクすみませんお父さんプラチナバンドみたいねなんだそれすごいおい聞いてるのかうん聞いてませんでしたおお前はカセフです確か宇宙ですあよろしくお願いしますかしこまりましたよそがいですよそがい
And of course, they built their whole thing on being the punk rock the man, the, uh, you know, we're, we're going against the system. And then he grew up and he kind of became a part of the system and had to start paying taxes and, you know, paying for his family and all that. And uh, it's it's what pays the bills. So if if he had to do that, I don't look down upon him for doing that because, you know what, it's what you got to you got to do what you got to do, you know, whatever. All right. So he's hawking butter. Uh, it's it's not like all of a sudden he's hawking uh, Republican dinners or some shit, you know, uh, it doesn't, again, it doesn't bother me. The commercials are also nowadays the place where I find it weird when all of a sudden I'm watching a commercial and I go, is that Richard Grieco narrating it? Or Henry Rollins? Is it kind of strange that they don't even publicize who their spokesmen are anymore? You just kind of, because wasn't, isn't that the point of getting a famous person to do your commercial, especially if it's just VO, that you've got this famous person doing it when all of a sudden you just go, that's Nicolas Cage narrating a car commercial. Doesn't that kind of go against the purpose? Uh, I have a feeling they probably have some kind of rider in their contract where it's like, look, we'll do your Ford commercial, but we won't say that it's us, but we won't say that it's not us. So uh, so that way, maybe there's some sort of plausible deniability. Oh, that it sounds like you in that Ford commercial. Yeah, it does. So it, it, I guess it's selling that... You know, it sounds like it could be Morgan Freeman, but he's not openly claiming for it to be him. So it maybe it isn't. Maybe it's just a guy who sounds a whole lot like him. I agree. Yeah, but thinking Morgan Freeman's very, very recognizable voice. But but isn't isn't the point of getting a major star to hawk your product that people know you've got a major star hawking your product? Yeah, that's the whole point. So isn't it sort of counterintuitive to hide them then? I wouldn't say they're necessarily hiding them. I would say they're just not openly projecting that it's them. Because you have a lot of people that are going to listen to it, and they're going to hear a voice that sounds familiar, and then they're going to, hey, that, that kind of sounds like it could be uh, Richard Grieco or Henry Rollins. And then they're going to look into it and be like, oh, yeah, it was that guy. And then they'll go and buy that camera or whatever because... That's, I totally agree with that because... If you recognize, wait, does that sound like so-and-so? You're going to stop and listen, and you know what? You're listening to the pitch. Well, but then when you're sticking with commercials, because, see, I I made this dividing line back in the 90s. You see famous people who are doing well-off that are doing these things. I consider that somewhat selling out. There was all this fervor when William Burroughs did those three Nike commercials in the 90s. Hey, I'm talking to you. The purpose of technology is not to confuse the brain, but to serve the body. To make life easier, to make anything anything possible. It's the coming of the new technology. For the purpose of technology is not to confuse the brain, but to serve the body. Technology is not the end of competition. It merely raises the bar one inch higher, one second faster. Technology is the mind pushing the limits of muscle. Brave new shoes. About how he sold out his entire image and how is the man that wrote Naked Lunch hawking Nikes now? And you look at his situation, he was so poor, he was almost living in a shack and eating one meal a day. 
I think those kind of situations are very different from, hey, I've got plenty of money, but I can always use more. Don't you? Well, I think those situations where they desperately need the money, I can completely condone because sometimes you got if you need the money, it's not worth it to stick by your ideals and say, no, no, I will starve before I do a commercial. You know, William Burroughs, he needed money. So Nike it was. And he got a meal that night. I, I think you got to do what you got to do, man. I mean, I, who, as I said earlier, who am I to judge? If you're going to do something that pays the bills, whatever. If you've got money and you want more money and somebody's willing to pay you money to do this thing, fine. If you are broke as hell and were previously against something, but now you'll do it and you're willing to go that route, sure, go right ahead. I, it, I think you just described my situation. Uh, yeah, you exactly. And if anyone wants to hire me to screw up their uh to to hawk their product, you can contact me at 1201beyond at gmail.com. I can also be found at 1201beyond.com. Yes, he does uh he does have a very good selling voice. You sell me where people can find you then, Cecil. You can find me at goodbadflix.com as well as geekjuicemedia.com. And no one's going to buy anything Alex is selling, but tell them where they can do it anyway. Oh, everyone's going to at geekjuicemedia.com. So I don't know if we're on the way up or we're on the way down, but Radiodrome will always be here, for better or worse.
Radio Drome is a 1201 Beyond production. Visit 1201beyond.com for more great shows.